0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I wanna thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're gonna to be joined by Dr. Salman Soldan, who actually has a lot of interesting perspectives, he is a primary care physician, is a nephrologist, and he's also an onconephrologist. And we're gonna be talking about primarily about myeloma, but also about issues related to diagnosis of myeloma, the role of the primary care physician and the nephrologist, a referral and co-participating in the care of patients with blood cancers. So welcome everyone who's listening, and I think for a very interesting discussion around that whole spectrum of care and shared care. Zalman, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So Zalman, let me ask you, what do you see as the role of the primary care clinician in caring for patients with myeloma?
2: So I see the primary care physician sort of in several roles. And I don't see the PCP sort of in a different role for oncology patients than for non-oncology patients. I see the primary care physician in a role to coordinate care. I see the primary care physician in a role to do and maintain preventive medicine for the patients, and also to fill in the gaps between all the different consultants. Many of our patients who have oncologic diagnoses will have multiple consultants, and certainly they have an oncologist, and it's to make sure that each specialist, they're looking at their own specialty, and I want to make sure that the little gaps between are filled in. I want to make sure that we're coordinating care between making sure that the patient gets the referrals that they need make sure the consultants recommendations mesh with each other because they may be looking at their own little tree versus the forest right although to be honest often i find that angle of it is subsumed under oncology and the oncologist is often taking care of that in terms of preventive care you know this can take a whole different angle for the oncology patient we talk about preventive care for a non-oncology patient you know, cancer screening, colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, make sure the vaccines are up to date. Depending on where an oncology patient is along their pathway in their treatment, some of those preventive care issues may fall by the wayside, depending on their prognosis, depending on how the treatment is going and what they're doing for treatment. And we may pick them up later when they're in remission and when they're more stable.
1: Yeah, let me ask you a little bit more about that because one of the discussions in cancer survivorship is about how cancer survivors, whether they're living with cancer or living without it after treatment, are sort of caught in the middle between primary care and, and oncology. A lot, in fact, the phrase is lost in transition. So, what's your overall sense? Is that common or fairly uncommon, caring for patients with blood diseases, blood cancers?
2: I've seen sort of both sides. I've seen patients sort of lose their primary care physician. I don't mean lose them, but their care is so intense on the oncology end that they're not following up with their PCP, or they may not have the time to follow up with their PCP because there's so much going on oncology-wise. On the other hand, I also have seen patients that have come to me after seeing another PCP or they want to transfer all their care to our hospital so that everyone is in contact with each other. We're all in the same computer system now. And I've seen patients come to me in that situation and they've had their PCP elsewhere and the PCP may or may not be in touch with the oncologist. So the PCP doesn't have a good handle on how intense the oncology treatment is or what's going on 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 the oncology end. And they're pushing them in terms of lipids and they're pushing them in terms of colonoscopy. And I look at them and look at the patient and say, you know, maybe this is not the time to push for all that. You have a lot going on in your plate. Let's get through all this and then we'll come back and we'll reevaluate once you're in remission, once it calms down. And I'm not sure I want to say it out loud to them, but once we see what your prognosis is.
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the really nice things with primary care, is sort of the continuity and in the involvement over time. Not all decisions have to be made at one instant.
2: Now, sometimes we we sort of feel pushed to get everything done because... The way medicine is now, we're sort of graded with all the things we have to do, and have you checked all the boxes off, and have you sent them for this test, have you sent them for that test? Medicare has the MIPS quality care, I forget exactly what it's called, and you have to check all these boxes. You have to say that you've done all this on their routine health maintenance exam. That may not necessarily be so ap- apropos for all our patients in on the oncology end.
1: Tom, I want to ask you, in your primary care portion of your practice. You've got patients who may have anemia or may in fact be developing on the nephrology side, CKD, a very mild amount, and you do a protein electrophoresis. Who needs to be referred? If you find a gammopathy, what does that mean to you and how do you decide? Should everyone be referred to, to hematology, oncology? Should some be referred and how do you decide?
2: So my personal feeling is that I think the vast majority of patients who, certainly if they have CKD and we find they have a gammopathy, should be referred to Hemonk right off the bat. There may be patients where we talk, I know them, and this is not a patient that would go for treatment. Maybe they have a very poor performance status. Maybe they're very frail. They may be someone that has already decided, I don't care what's going to go on. I'm not getting treatment. So that may be someone I don't refer But in general, I think the vast majority of these patients should be seen by Hemonc. And that, in terms of the nephrology end, I think that's even changed a little bit. In the patients that may have an MGUS, just an MGUS, they may not have major renal issues from that. And we can watch that for a while, depending on their proteinuria, depending on what else we see. But as time has changed, and as we've seen the entity called MGRS come up, I think it's even more important now to send these patients to be seen by Hemonc because it may not be full-blown myeloma. It may just be an MGUS to everyone else, but now we're seeing renal issues from them, and I want help in terms of figuring that out and who needs a biopsy and who doesn't need a biopsy.
1: For the listening audience, what is an
2: MGRF? An MGUS is monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. I'll leave that to you to define. Okay. All Uh, right an MGRS, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. So basically, it's a monoclonal gammopathy, just like an MGUS. We have a small level of monoclonal gammopathy of globulin fraction. And in general, we used to think that wouldn't cause major renal issues, but we're seeing a select few patients where they do go into renal failure from that, where it's depositing in the renal tissue and disrupting the renal architecture in a similar way that sometimes full-blown myeloma may. So right, we look at it in a very similar way, but it's not full-blown myeloma, but it's treated very similarly. So
1: I have to say, I as a hematologist, I see, I mean, it's not a large number, but I see patients like that pretty much every month. And it always is an interesting sort of interaction between oncology and nephrology, trying to sort it out. It rarely is prayed forward because often the patients have diabetes or they have high blood pressure or they've got other right. reasons for kidney disease.
2: And I find the same thing. We talk back and forth, the hematologist with me, is it really MGRS? Could it be MGRS? What else might be going on? We had a case a couple months ago with a patient who had polycystic kidney disease in the background and had mm. an MGUS. So now the question yeah. is... Well, is the patient going to renal failure because of the polycystic kidney disease? On the one hand, for sure. Right. But could they also be having a component of that renal failure be from the MGRS? But you have to take it one step further because in MGRS, we can do a kidney transplant in myeloma. It depends on the center, whether the kidney transplant center will do a transplant. But in MGRS, The vast majority of centers, if not all the centers, will do transplant. So then the question is making sure that's what it is, making sure it is MGRS. Does that need treatment before they go for transplant or not? And then looking at afterwards, looking at the surveillance afterwards in terms of how do we monitor them afterwards after transplant?
1: Yeah, yeah, good point. So tell us what did happen or what has happened with your patient with polycystic disease. How did you decide to sort of answer the question, and what did you find out?
2: So we talked about doing a biopsy on her, but after talking with the interventional radiologist, they felt that this was not going to be a safe biopsy for her because she had such significant polycystic kidney disease and such advanced polycystic kidney disease. So they felt it was not going to be safe to do a biopsy on her. We spoke with the transplant center where she was going to be transplanted and they felt that her MGUS, which could have been an MGRS if that okay. if it was affecting the kidney, was very unlikely to be an MGRS and partially because right. of Occam's razor. Yeah, The odds of having two diagnoses here were so, so low. On top right. of that, they felt, look, now she's on a radar screen for that. Once she gets transplanted, we're definitely going to be looking for it. And in case it comes back, we're going to send her right back to hematology for treatment.
1: Got it. I'd like to ask you sort of for a report card. I'll call it that. But, you know, in general, just your experience in different settings, talking about communication, would you say that we as oncologists, again, caring for patients with blood cancers, deserve an A for communication or a B or a C or a D, or are we failing? And I'd love your sort of perspective on that and also, you know, anything we can do to improve the communication.
2: I can only speak Mm -hmm. in terms of the oncologists that I have contact with, that I share patients with. And I would say for the most part, the oncologists that I share patients with, we are talking all the time, whether that's after each visit may or may not happen, but certainly on a fairly frequent basis, just to know what's going on, I personally make a very big deal about sending my notes to the other consultants. In our electronic medical record system, it was very easy to fax notes over. Now, actually, in my new office, I'm on the same system as most of the oncologists that I interact with. So our notes are automatically right. transferred, show up as a flag when I log in. Yeah. So I would sure. say the oncologists that I interact with very much on top of it in terms of communication with the other physicians and the other consultants and the PCP on the case.
1: Yeah. Zaman, let me ask you about coordination of care. How about in in regards to psychosocial issues that patients are having? And they may be issues at home and unrelated to their cancer care. Do you find those are being handled more on the primary care side, more on the oncology side, a little bit of both?
2: I think a little bit of both, and it depends on the patient. There are patients that seem to gravitate to one person or the other, or one specialist versus the other, to have them work with them on some of those issues. I've had patients where, I guess it also was personality wise, and some patients you hit it off with better, and I have yep. patients that I'm very friendly with, and I become very friendly with, and they sort of become part of the family, whether that's the medical office family or they feel like I'm part of the family, and they relate to me in certain ways that other patients may not relate and I hear about their issues at home, I hear about their kids, and I hear about what's going on with their children, and sometimes they'll tell me what's going on with their finances at home. so I hear about it on that end, and there are other patients that don't open up to me but i get the sense that they're opening up to someone else and that sometimes the oncologist will push that issue or the oncologist often will have other providers with them like mid levels with them who correct i'm not sure if that's their role or not but seems to be part of their role or it seems to be become part of their role in terms of working with the patients and their and their psychosocial issues yeah.
1: And I would agree with you. Firstly, as a clinician, I have the same experiences. There's some patients who I relate to and they relate to me exceptionally well. And then there's other people that are much more connected with my nurse or with the social worker. So it's actually one of the beauties of a uh, team approach to care. How about things like bone health and all the other kind of issues? Uh, I would ask about kidney issues, but I think I know who's going to handle more of those when it comes to you or oncology.
2: Yeah, the kidney issues are gonna come to me. Although I have to say over the years, I've learned a lot from our oncologists and I have to give them a lot of credit because as a nephrologist, you walk in with a certain training and very quickly I learned that our oncologists really know a lot about every system. And it's a pleasure working with them because at the same time, I think I know something in my field. I learn a lot from them every day. In terms of bone health, that in particular, I find often in the liquid tumors, that's often handled by the oncologist, myeloma especially, because myeloma is notorious for having bone issues, and a lot of them are already being treated with bisphosphonates, so that issue is already being handled for them on that end.
1: Let's take a little bit further. The GI issues, the pulmonary issues, are there any sort of patterns of care that you see, or... Where you might say, geez, it's better that it's handled by oncology, or it's better that it's handled by primary care.
2: So, I mean, you bring up GI you bring up pulm issues. I've certainly had patients, I can think of one patient with myeloma who developed pulmonary issue. I think on both ends we had to push for it. We had to both recognize it and we had to listen to the patient. I remember the oncologist and me to figure this out and On the one hand, the oncologist wasn't sure this was what was going on. And I said, I'm sending this person to a pulmonologist. I want to know what's going on. I want another opinion. I'm not sure my friends, the oncologists want to hear that sometimes. but I want to make sure that the patients taken care of. Absolutely. I don't want to come across that they're not taking care of the patients. Absolutely, they're taking care of the patients. And often, they're handling a lot of these issues much more frequently than I am because they're also seeing the patient much more frequently. You know, if they're getting treatment once or twice a week or, you know, once a month, depending on the med, they're seeing them on a much more frequent basis, whether it's just coming into the clinic just to get the med, but they're not really being seen by the oncologist, but they're still there and their staff is seeing them and the APNs are seeing them. So they're often taking care of these issues in a much more frequent fashion than I am.
1: In a sense, on the other side of this whole spectrum, which is really end of life caring, goals of care discussions. I mean, sometimes a patient has been with their primary care doctor for years, years, and years, and years, and then has a diagnosis of a blood cancer, and maybe, you know, reaching a point that they're dying from it. Those discussions, the goals of care discussion, And again, what's, you know, obviously based on your experience, but again, in a sense, sort of a record card, are the goals of care discussion involving the primary care physicians? Is there anything, again, we could or should do differently in oncology?
2: Often the goals of care seem to come up when patients get admitted to the hospital for whatever reason, and then sort of that very much brings the goals of care discussion to the forefront, depending on why they're admitted. Obviously, if they're admitted for something severe, then it really needs to be discussed. For those patients who are in steady state, for lack of a better way to say it, they're in remission or they're being treated, but nothing they're not having major side effects, they're not having major other issues. I've seen the goals of care sort of being dealt with on both ends. Some patients, and this sort of comes back to our discussion earlier, that there's some patients that very much relate to one doctor versus another. there are some patients that want to have that goals of care discussion with me because I've known them, I know their family, I talk with their family, I'm friendly with them, you know, we have a a different rapport. And at other times, they very much want to have that goals of care discussion with the oncologist because it very much depends on what is going to be their oncology treatment.
1: Zalman, I want to ask you sort of uh, some miscellaneous questions, but nonetheless, very important ones. In your field of nephrology, also in our field of oncology, sort of the understanding of things from a molecular standpoint has increased dramatically, including sort of genetic predispositions to cancer. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on where's some of the responsibility for doing the testing and also for sharing it with patients because it's got so many implications for the rest of their family.
2: All right. so I think a lot of that definitely is going to fall to the oncologist, just because that's part of the diagnosis. That's the process of making the diagnosis in the first place. And I'm certainly not an oncologist, but I've learned over the years that sometimes the different genetics play a role in designing a treatment regimen. Does it need to be more aggressive or less aggressive? At the same time, I think it's important because we have so many more tools now looking at genetics that we open this up to the patient a little bit more and make it more available to the patient, even if we don't need it for the diagnosis, but make some of this genetics available to the patient if they want, not so much for them, but they're going to be worried. And we know they're going to be worried because they express it to us. They're going to be worried about their children and potentially even more so their children's children, because in patients who have liquid tumors and they're in their 20s, well, one For the most part, they haven't had children yet. There aren't too many myeloma patients in their 20s, if any, but the myeloma patient will be, I've seen patients in their 40s and their 50s. I've seen patients certainly in their 70s and 80s, and the 70s and 80s have already had their children, but their children are having children, or they're watching their own children grow up, and their children will be worried about the next generation. Do they need to be screened? How often do they need to be screened? And I think some of this genetic testing we should make available to them or at least discuss with them because they're going to be concerned about it.
1: Absolutely. I want to ask you about COVID, uh, which is obviously still a very timely topic, but in terms of the primary care role and caring for patients with blood cancers, and in terms of COVID, what are some of the questions that you've been getting the phone calls from patients, their families, and other clinicians?
2: So, first off, I think COVID. In some respects, sort of dampened primary care for some patients, but at the same time, blew it wide open, made it very much available because we were moved to telemed for a long period of time. So, mm-hmm. patients who couldn't come in all the time, telemed was a very easy solution. And for a lot of issues that come up in primary care, for an immediate issue like a sick visit issue, a lot of those issues, though not all, can be dealt with with a telemed visit, just as we're seeing so many companies sort of grow. In that exact field so it blew it open in that regard and made it very much available for some patients on the other hand it made it difficult for other patients who either weren't comfortable with telemed or had issues that couldn't be dealt with over a video call and really need to be seen let alone oncology patients regular patients were scared to come in for a while to the doctor's office now take an oncology patient who's immunosuppressed they're very much scared to come in so To some patients, it dampened and made it difficult to deal with other issues. At the same time, there were patients I was on the phone with on a regular basis. They were worried about COVID. Early on, we didn't know what to do, and I was constantly getting called. I came in contact with someone or someone at my church reported back that they were COVID positive. Now what do I do? And what do I do with my kids? What do I do with my family? As time moved on, as the guidelines coalesced, Around quarantining and isolation, then those questions changed. How long do I need to isolate? Do I need to isolate? Do I need to quarantine? Patients who had kids, elementary school age kids, high school kids, that was key questions because their kids are still, for a lot of patients, their kids went back to school at a certain point once the fall semester started. And how do they interact with them? Do they need to isolate from them? Do they need to wear masks? Around the house do they need to wear ma- do the kids need to wear masks in school, even if their friends are being lax about it or the school isn't requiring it? should their own children be wearing masks at school to- because when they come home they need to protect their parents or protect the other family member that has an oncology diagnosis and then later on it moved toward vaccinations. When should I get vaccinated? How should I get vaccinated? Which vaccine should I get? How many doses should I get and now Should I get a booster? How many boosters should I get? And I hadn't realized this was going on in the oncology world. We certainly, we saw it in the nephrology world among kidney transplants. We were questioning, was there a response to the vaccines? And one of the leaders in the field in kidney transplant held a seminar, a webinar, because we're all on the web at the time, talking about maybe we should be and no one else were we testing antibodies because we didn't know what the antibodies meant, how high level meant immunity, did it even mean immunity. But in our kidney transplant patients, we started testing a lot of them, the kidney, recipient, kidney transplant recipients, we started testing a lot of them because if they had no response, then we knew we had to tell them, please keep isolating. And if they did have a response, then maybe we felt a little bit more comfortable with allowing them to open up again. So I knew this from the kidney transplant world. And I'm sitting one day actually with one of our myeloma oncologists here at the hospital. And I said, you know, I'm just curious, this is what we're doing in the kidney transplant world. Are you doing the same thing? And he said, yeah, we're already doing that. We all have the same concerns. And he said he was testing all his patients or recommending they get tested to see if they had responded to the vaccines. So that was a different level, and and it's sort of evolved as the pandemic has evolved, the questions, the intensity of the questions, and what the patients needed along the way.
1: So by the way, I have to say that it's one of the very best chronologies of sort of dealing with the pandemic over the course of two years, so thank you for sharing it like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode. and also want to take a minute and thank Dr. Zalman Soldan for joining us and for participating. Zalman, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: For our listeners, if you would like a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash ce. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes.
0: Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org/ce let's keep the conversation going until next time